Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to look upon this word of your truth, we ask once more that you will open our eyes that we may see you who see you as you really are, the God of infinite love. That you will open our ears that we may hear and understand of the grace and mercy that you give to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that you will open our hearts that we might believe it and that we might live it all the days of our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Please turn again in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we take a look at this passage together. Excuse me. I uh, grew up hearing a lot about peace. Peace was big and peace is big still on the world's agenda. Peace in Northern Ireland, uh, peace in the Middle East, peace in the Congo, peace in South Africa and a myriad of other places all over the world. Lots of agreements and talks, processes and truth commissions and truth and reconciliation commissions and so on all so that there would be peace. In Northern Ireland, we had, of course, the Belfast Agreement, which was meant to bring peace to the province. And then we had the St. Andrews Agreement, which was meant to do the same. And now we have the Hillsborough Agreement, which is meant to do the same, all in the pursuit of peace. Now, you'll forgive me if I'm slightly cynical about all this stuff. Uh, Having lived through it all and experienced it, uh, and experienced the reality of it on the ground, during all these peace talks and so on, hearing the the newspaper reports, you sometimes have to wonder what planet the press are actually on. For what the press and the so-called peacemakers mean by peace is often not peace at all. For Northern Ireland, we're meant to be at peace. Hostilities have ceased, the conflict is over, we're told, apart from the month of July where some people tend to go on strike from the peace process and revert back to the old way of thinking. You see, peace is more than the ceasing of hostilities between two warring factions. In parts of Belfast, they have, water, uh, they have peace and it is enforced. It is enforced by huge walls, ironically called peace lines. These 30-foot-high monsters separate opposing communities so they don't have to live with each other. And from time to time, of course, yobs from one side will throw bricks or petrol bombs over the peace line at the other side. And once the other side, that happens, the other side retaliate and so on. And then the police come out and everybody throws stuff at the police and then everybody's happy. But, you see, it's not peace. That's not peace. There may be the absence of all-out conflict, yes. And it may be a whole lot better than it was, certainly. But beyond the paper agreements, on the ground, in the communities, there is no peace. For peace means more than the cessation of conflict. It means the renewal of relationships. It means reconciliation with those whom you oppose. Peace is harmony. Hebrew word, of course, shalom. Hebrew word meaning Peace, that means peace. It means to restore harmony. And that's how the Bible understands the word peace. It's not that conflict has ceased. It is that, but it's more than that. It's the renewal of harmony. 
It's when your enemies become your friends. It's when you can invite your enemy into your home and have a meal and laugh and rejoice together. It's when you can walk across the battlefield and shake your enemy's hand. True peace involves forgiveness. It involves justice. And it will mean sacrifice. And it is always motivated by love. And that's the idea of peace that Paul speaks of here in Romans 5. Where he turns now to the implications of our justification by faith in Jesus. Up to now, Paul has been concerned to show us how we might be justified. That is how we are made righteous. But now he turns to what happens next for the believer. Having been justified, what does that then mean for us? So I want us to see three things in this, uh, these 11 verses. First of all, I want us to see how we experience God's peace how we experience God's love and how we experience God's reconciliation. Paul begins in verse 1 with the word therefore and that means he's drawn a contrast with what he said before. This, this and this, therefore this. So chapter 1 verse 16, from there he has been showing us how and why we need to be justified before God. Remember, of course, he has shown us that God's wrath is being revealed in a temporary way now in the, the degradation of society as God gives them over to evil desires and thinking. And it's also that wrath is going to be poured out in a final, permanent way on the last day, on the day of God's wrath, when each of us will be judged by God's holy standard. And then he showed us that there's no escape from this judgment in the law or in circumcision if you were a Jew. Indeed, the very law that the Jews boasted about condemned them and left them under God's judgment without hope. For nobody can keep the law's requirements. <coughs> then in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, but now, but now something is different. God has provided righteousness apart from the law for us. And that comes, of course, through faith in Jesus who died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, and so leaves God just and us justified. Then he showed us in chapter 4, which we looked at this morning, that this is the way that God has always worked. He has always justified his people by faith alone. He justified Abraham that way. He justified King David that way. God justifies people by faith alone. And we receive the benefits, of course, uh, as people who have been justified by faith, the benefits of his promise, the promises that were given to Abraham. Of course, through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, says Paul, as a result of all that God has done for us in the gospel, therefore, if that's all correct, if we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace here, of course, is not some sort of mellowed out feeling, a serenity that you experience like some sort of hippie on drugs. Peace is a new status with God. Beforehand, we were God's enemies. We were under his wrath and condemnation. Now we're at peace 
Now hostilities have ended and what's more, we have been reconciled. Verse 11. Peace here is the restoration of harmony between God and humanity. It's the removal of the grounds for God's wrath. This peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes as God restores our relationship through him. Jesus, of course, the one who suffered the penalty for our sins, the one who was punished to allow us to be justified. Therefore, we're now at peace. This is an objective reality. We now have, since we now have been justified by faith, this is what we have. We have peace with God. It may manifest itself, of course, in feelings of intense joy. But primarily, this is a status. It is a harmony between us, sinful, rebellious humans, and God. And more than this, verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, as a justified believer and having peace with God, we have access into the grace we now find ourselves in. Before, we were under sin and condemnation. We were fearful of God's judgment, but now we're under his grace. That is God's unmerited favor towards us. We stand here and now as believers under grace. Having our sins dealt with, at peace with God, we experience his grace and mercy to us. We experience his, and we experience his peace because it's all of his doing. Because of what God has done in the past, that is our justification at the cross, we now have peace with God as we stand in his favor now in the present. And these are the fruits of our justification. As God makes us righteous through faith in Jesus, we we stand at this very moment, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand at this very moment with God looking at us with favor, with his grace, rather than with his anger and wrath. What's more, we not only have the benefit of peace and favor with God, but now we also have the hope of a future as well. Paul says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this is an interesting little phrase, and to understand it, uh, we need to take a step back into the Old Testament to the promises made to the nation of Israel. When they were, went into exile in Babylon, God promised to the nation that he would rescue them, that he would bring them back from exile and restore their fortunes. But this would always come about so that God would be the one who was honored. God would be the one who was exalted. God's name would be glorified. The restoration of Israel was seen in terms of them sharing in this glory that God was going to reveal through his salvation. However, when Israel did eventually come back from exile, remember Ezra, Nehemiah, and so on, there was very little glory. The temple was not any more glorious than the one, in fact, that had been previously. In fact, it was a little box compared to the previous one. So this promise then was referring to something far greater. It was referring then to not just the restoration of Israel, but the restoration of the whole world. A time when God's glory would be displayed in the whole earth through the work of 
Of course, as, as Isaiah called him the Lord's servant, whom he talks about, Isaiah 53, for example. And this was all seen and described for us in terms of God's glory being displayed. Example, Isaiah 60. So for Christians, having been justified by faith in Jesus, now we have hope of sharing in the glory of God when he finally restores the creation to what it was meant to be. We rejoice because this hope is, is a certain hope. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a promise, a promise, a promise fulfillment that has already begun in us as we have been justified and restored into our relationship with God. So our justification then affects us now as we stand here, as we sit here rather, we experience God's peace. And in the future, as we hope for a new heavens and a new earth where we will share in that glory that God has already revealed in Christ and will finally and completely reveal when Christ comes again. Now, we might not feel like we have peace or we experience an overwhelming sense of peace, but our trust is in what God has done for us through the gospel, through the death of Jesus, and that gives us assurance that we now have peace with God and can rejoice because that also guarantees a hope that waits us, for the, awaits us in the future. But that's not all we rejoice in. And very surprisingly, Paul says some more. He doesn't say that we just rejoice in this hope of the future, but we also rejoice in our present in our present suffering. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. You see, it's, for some of us, it's all very well and all very theoretical, if you like to put it that way, about all this talk of future glory. But what about now? What about the here and now? What about my suffering? You can talk all you want about peace and and restoration of a relationship with God. But what about my, the current state of affairs in this world? Do they not undermine what Paul is saying? How can I have any joy or hope in the future when the present is so difficult and I experience so much suffering, so much pain? Well, Paul actually argues the exact opposite, doesn't he? Paul says that we can rejoice in our sufferings and that we experience here and now, these sufferings that we experience here and now, for they have a purpose for us. They're not God just being capricious with us. Rather, it's through these sufferings that we learn to persevere in faith and trust in the gospel. And what's more, as we persevere, we develop. We develop character. And as our character develops through these trials, we hope, and we hope all the more in the future and in that glory of God that is to come. It's these trials that help us see the full reality of the hope that we have in the gospel promise. All these things that we experience in the world, all these things, pain, sorrow, persecution, loss, natural disasters, diseases, all are symptoms of our broken world, a world under the curse. 
but they help us. They help us develop as Christians and they teach us to hope all the more for that glorious future that awaits us. Hope, I guess, is a bit like a muscle. If you stop using it, then it won't be very strong. Much like my uh, stomach muscles. When I was at high school, I played hockey four days a week. I trained endlessly to run about a pitch with a, a ball. And my muscles were well developed. But you can see what seven years of neglect has done. But what's more, um, this hope we have, it doesn't disappoint us, does it? It's not some sort of blind wish, wishful thinking, that, we may or, that may or may not take place. Rather, it is a certain hope. It's a hope because of God's love for us. It is based on God's love. And hope does not disappoint us, says Paul, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Verse 5. The phrase here, hope does not disappoint us, would, could be more literally translated, hope will not put us to shame. That is, when it counts on the last day, we won't be put to shame. It won't let us down, because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And of course, this is the first time in this entire letter that Paul uses the language of God's love. And he speaks of God's love being poured out into our hearts, again, carrying this idea of abundance, of overflow, of his love by the Holy Spirit. But what is he saying here? Well, I think he's referring to what the Holy Spirit means for our future hope. Remember, elsewhere, Paul will talk and refer to the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, the first fruits of what is still to come in the future. Once we are sealed, he talks about, with the Holy Spirit, when we become a Christian. That is the guarantee, the down payment of what is still to come in the next stage, of that hope of glory. So Paul is saying our hope will not let us down because God has loved us. He has loved us and he has given us of his Holy Spirit into our hearts, which converts us, which makes us into Christians, and which shows us the love of God for us by enabling us to trust the gospel. The Holy Spirit, you see, is the one who causes us to turn around in repentance. He's the one who works in us, that changes our heart. So that we trust in the gospel of God's grace and are saved. God has loved us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And so our hope in that future is certain. Because the Spirit is that first fruits. That down payment of that future glory. I don't think Paul is primarily thinking of this pouring out of the Holy Spirit as a subjective feeling or experience. Uh, you know, intense feelings of God's love for us that it may in fact manifest itself in that way. Many people have experienced it in that way. I'm sure all of us have had occasions when we can say that God's love has felt very personal to us. But here, I think Paul is pointing out that God loves us and he gives us the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our future inheritance and glory. And so our hope is certain. It will not disappoint us. But more than this, our hope is also certain and God love, God's love is, is shown for us in the death of Jesus. Verses 6 and 8. You see, says Paul, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ 
died for us. At just the right time, says Paul, when we were still powerless, when we could do nothing to save ourselves, when all hope was lost, when there was no way we could provide a righteousness that was good enough for God that he would accept, Christ dies for the ungodly. He died for those who suppressed the truth about God, who rebelled against his rightful rule over them, for those who loved sin more than God, and who worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And Paul uses this illustration of the righteous and the good man. And he shows us in that just the the wonder of God's love for us. He points out that, that very rarely If at all, will anyone give their lives for the creme de la creme of human society, the righteous or the good? These are the best that humanity has to offer. And if only very rarely will somebody be prepared to die for such people, how much more amazing is it then and wonderful is it that God's love for us would make him send Christ? To die for us. And we're not good people. We're not the righteous. We're not the creme de la creme. We're the rebels. We're the sinners. We're the ungodly. His enemies. Those who hated him. Scorned his name. Who ignored his existence. It's people like that. People like you. People like me. Christ died for us. That, my friends, is is the supreme, the supreme manifestation of the love of God, that God would die for his enemies, for helpless, ungodly sinners. It wasn't that we earned it. It wasn't that we were lovely enough and God thought, oh, I'll die for those guys. It was the fact that we were powerless. We were sinful. Yet God demonstrates his love as Christ died. For us. He suffered for us. He paid the penalty for our ungodly ways. And so we see in the cross of Jesus Christ how deep, how high, how glorious is the love of God for us. He has given us his spirit, which shows us the wonder of his love for us and the gospel of his grace. God's unmerited, unconditional love poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and demonstrated supremely in the cross of Christ. You know, you might ask that question that I think all Christians ask from time to time. How do I know? How do I know that God loves me? Sometimes it doesn't feel like God is there at all. But don't place your assurance of God's love in your feelings. Feelings and moods go up and down and appear and disappear like sunshine in Glasgow. God's love doesn't primarily come to us through our feelings and emotions. It comes to us through the cross. It comes to us in the certainty of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how much God loves you. 
Every Christian wants to know that. You want to know if God loves you. Then you look at the cross where the wonder of God's love is seen. There in the costly sacrifice of the Son of God, he died to turn away God's wrath, to turn you from God's enemy into God's friend. God demonstrates to us his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, under God's wrath and judgment, with no hope of a future, Christ died. He died for you. And finally, not only do we have the assurance of God's love now, but we also have the assurance of our future on Judgment Day, verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Paul here uses the how much more argument. So if this is true, how much more must this be true, he's saying. So since we have been justified by his blood, that is a sacrificial death for our sins, how much more shall we be saved on judgment day from God's righteous wrath against our sins? Since our justification is sure, and we know that through the the cross, God has dealt finally with our sins, punishing them in Jesus How much more can we be sure that when we stand before Jesus on judgment day, that we will be safe from that final manifestation, that final permanent manifestation of God's wrath? For we will stand there righteous through the death of Jesus. Our ransom has already been paid, the price for our redemption given, so there is no more need for it to be given again. The blood of Jesus paid it all. And therefore God's wrath is satisfied and we won't be punished again. But Paul continues even more. When we were God's enemies, those under his wrath and judgment, we were reconciled and brought into a restored relationship with God through the death of Jesus. How much more then shall we be rescued? Shall we be rescued from God's judgment by Christ's life? That is his resurrection and all that it stands for. For when Christ was raised from the dead, that that meant that God was accepting as sufficient the death of Jesus for our sins, the sins of his people. God was showing that this death was enough. Nothing more need be added. That was it. So then if we are not, not any longer God's enemies, if we have experienced God's reconciliation, where we have been made into his friends, then surely, surely it's not that difficult for God to save us in the end. If God has done the difficult bit of providing a way, a way in which we can become his friends, then surely, if that is true, he won't turn around and condemn us on judgment day. Rather, we have hope and confidence that we will be saved from that wrath. You see, God has once for all time through Christ made us right with himself. And since now in the present we are reconciled to God and have that certain hope of the future, 
It's a hope that comes from God's actions in the past on the cross and is shown to us in the present by his love and assured to us for the future as we hope for it. As we rejoice. And how we rejoice. We rejoice in the future and in the present even when we go through such difficult sufferings and trials. Even when it's tough for us and our lives are a mess. We rejoice. We have joy because we have a certain future. You see, if all you have is the present, then you don't have very much to be joyful about, do you? If all you have is the hope of, of pain, of sorrow, suffering, of the diseases and the cancers, of the heart attacks, Zimmer frames, psychiatric hospitals, you don't have much hope, really. Indeed, I think that's primarily the reason why our world now wants euthanasia, is it not? Why we have so much uh, trouble with suicide. For if, the, if all we have is the present, if all we have is the pain, if all we have is the sorrow, if there's no hope of anything better, then death becomes the only option. It's very sad, really. How many seek death as the answer to their suffering? I, uh, I logged on to the, the Belfast telly just this afternoon. As you know, Alex Higgins has just uh, died, the famous snooker player from Belfast. Uh, and I, I picked up an article uh, about Higgins. Uh, it was actually a, a, an interview he gave in April this year uh, with the News of the World, and he confessed that he had almost committed suicide. Uh, his pain, his sorrow was so great that he just wanted it to end. But uh, he didn't. And the reason he didn't, it was quite staggering actually. His mother had given him a Bible when he was 15 years old and he started to read it. And as he read it, he decided, no, I'm going to fight on. I'm not going to commit suicide. I thought that was amazing because what does the Bible teach us? What is the Bible all about? Well, it shows us why we have hope, doesn't it? It shows us that there actually is hope. There's not just what we experience in the brokenness and hurt of the world, but there's more. But for all those who, of course, don't have that hope, then there's only sickness and sorrow and ultimately the, the fear of death. Yet if you're a Christian, you have the certainty of the future. You have hope and assurance and you know that God loves you. And you know that if Christ has died for you, then there are weights for you. There is assurance of a, a new heavens and a new earth. Not that awful fear of death and uncertainty and life beyond the grave as the pagans have. We have assurance. So we have joy. We rejoice not only in the future and in our present sufferings, but also in God, says Paul, verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now the word translated rejoice here is, is literally boast. We boast in God. We don't boast in our good works, in our worthiness, in our moral superiority, in our ability to please God. We boast in God. 
and in what God has done for us in Christ. In the death of his son, through whom we have experienced the peace of God, the love of God, and have experienced God's reconciliation. As he takes us from being his enemies and by his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his justice and his mercy, through the costly sacrifice of his son, he reconciles us to himself. Have you experienced, have you experienced this kind of love? Have you known that assurance that God gives us in the gospel, that peace and hope that we have? Is that your hope for the future? Do you know that joy, that that wonderful joy that we have, that even through the difficulties that we face in this world, we can still have that hope. It still lifts our eyes from our present circumstances and fixes them on our future via the cross. Can you say, as you sit here tonight in this building, that you have peace with God? Father in heaven, we thank you that at just the right time, when we were still helpless and powerless, that Christ died for us. We thank you that through his death, we have indeed experienced that peace as we have been reconciled to you. We have experienced that love that you have shown and demonstrated for us on the cross. And we have experienced that reconciliation that you have provided for us. That great hope of eternal life. That great hope of life beyond the grave. of A life where, which is free of sorrow and suffering. A life of rejoicing in you in a new heavens and a new earth. We thank you, Lord. That since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with you. And how we bless you for it. Help us, Lord, to trust in it to rest in it, never to let go of it, but all the more to believe it and to teach it to others that they may come and know that peace, that love, that reconciliation and that hope that we have in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name.